And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Our gospel reading this morning is a famous one, the Great Commission. Jesus Jesus issues his final commandment before ascending into heaven, leaving the church with a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. As the name might suggest, for our denomination, World Missions was front and center. We were often visited by missionaries and their families back in the States on furlough. They would tell us about the work they were doing to spread the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Our refrigerator was littered with their pictures, and their names would populate our prayers before bed. My little sister would make sure we didn't miss any. Needless to say, I became very familiar with Jesus' great commission from a very early age. But no one drew too much attention to the verses leading up to this famous passage. As we heard this morning, the setting for Jesus' last words is a mountain where he directed his disciples to meet him. It's only the 11, his closest followers, minus the betrayer Judas, and when they see him, they worship him. But then we read something strange. St. Matthew tells us that some doubted. What? What do you mean they doubted? Jesus is standing right there. Are they in disbelief that it's really him? What are we to make of this strange little detail? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that this word we heard translated as doubted could also be rendered hesitated. This helps clarify what might be going on here. Some of the disciples are hesitating, not because Jesus is standing before them, but because they are unsure if they should join the others in worshiping him. They are, after all, good Jews who know that the only person anyone should be worshiping is God. This hesitation is understandable. Trinitarian dogma won't be defined for another couple of centuries. And these are people for whom the resurrection is very fresh. As close as they were to Jesus, the full picture of his identity is still unfolding. So this hesitation is not unfounded. They know that there is a lot at stake in who or what we worship. This, is, this theme of worship is central to our reading from Revelation, too. Indeed, I think it's perhaps the pivot on which that whole book turns. We often forget in all the apocalyptic imagery and cryptic symbolism that St. John's revelation is, first of all, a letter, like most of the rest of the New Testament, to the church. And the church at the end of the first century was a new religious sect in a vast empire that maintained a pretty tolerant policy toward the religions of its subjects. You could worship anything or anyone you wanted. But there was a catch. You had to worship the emperor, too. Oh, nothing much. You didn't have to assent to any complicated metaphysical doctrines. And no one really cared whether you actually believed any of the emperor's claims to divinity. 
You just had to demonstrate where your true loyalties lay. Just a pinch of incense to prove your commitment to the Roman world order. This worked just fine for most of the empire, but as we've already seen in Jesus' disciples' hesitation, it was a problem for Jews. And it became an even bigger problem for Christians. Not only were they refusing the show of allegiance to the state, they were also spreading a message about a man executed by that same state and suggesting that he somehow came back to life and that he, not the emperor, was the true divine ruler of the world. Well, tolerance only goes so far. Once the object of your worship is placed in direct competition with the symbol of the state, you are socially and politically dangerous. And so the church was always at risk of persecution. As soon as anything got a little shaky, say a famine or an outbreak of social unrest, there was a scapegoat ready to hand in the Christians. The first significant wave of persecution of this kind was carried out under Emperor Nero in the 60s. This would have been a not-too-distant memory in the minds of St. John's audience. And he seems to have a sense that another wave of persecution is imminent. 20th century New Testament scholar George Bradford Caird suggests that this is precisely what John has in mind when he alludes to things that must soon take place in chapter 1. So everything John writes in his letter is meant to encourage these Christians on the brink of tribulation and exhort them to endure. It is in this context that we are to understand the great ordeal we heard about in our reading from chapter 7 this morning. St. John describes a great multitude that no one could count. They are robed in white, carrying palm branches, and they join the heavenly host in worshiping God. Then one of the elders, because I think he knows we're all dying to know, asks John, who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? And after John says something along the lines of, gee, I was kind of hoping you would tell me, we hear the answer. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, this color white and the palm branches that they carry are symbols of victory in the ancient world. But the victory this multitude has won is the same kind of victory the one they worship has won. They have made their robes white in his blood because they, like him, have conquered through their death at the hands of the state. The one they worship now is the one whose worship cost them their lives. In short, they are those who did not hesitate to worship Jesus. There's another detail I want us to pay attention to. This great numberless host is from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What started as a Jewish sect in Palestine has spread to the ends of the earth. The church has heeded Christ's great commission. Disciples have been made of all nations. Because here's the thing about persecution. It tends to blow up in your face. The witness of those who would rather die than compromise their worship of the true Lord of Lords draws attention and turns out to be pretty attractive. 
about a century or so after the writing of Revelation, Tertullian, an African bishop, wrote a defense of Christians to the Romans. He pointed out that persecution wasn't having the intended effect. The more you mow us down, he writes, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. He goes on to point out that many celebrated Roman poets, Cicero and Seneca, to name a few, praise those who show courage in the face of pain and death. But, he says, their words do not find so many disciples as Christians do. Teachers not by words, but by their deeds. When those in power call your bluff and you don't flinch, when you don't hesitate to die for what you believe, the world pays attention. And here, I think, is a word for all of us on this World Mission Sunday. We will not all travel to foreign lands to spread the gospel, but the Great Commission is no less a command for each of us. We will not all suffer a violent death for the sake of the gospel, but each of us is called to bear witness. We will not all be called to preach or convince others with our words, but we will all make plain who we worship by the way we live our lives. And you can be sure, sooner or later, it will put us at odds with the world order of our time. And those around us will be watching. It might be a situation at work, how we navigate a relationship, our consumption choices, affiliations, any aspect of our lives might suddenly bring into focus the tension between our worship of Christ and the devotion to a teeming pantheon of idols that a deceived and deceiving society demands of us. How will we respond? Will we worship our Lord no matter the cost? Or will we hesitate? I want to close with a note of encouragement to the hesitators. We're in good company. Recall that those who hesitated to worship Jesus on the mountain were not mere sideline auditors. They were some of the 11 disciples, the original apostles. They might have hesitated then, but they came around eventually, and most of them were killed for it. Those who come out of the great ordeal are not those who never hesitated. They are those who don't hesitate forever. Discipleship takes time. We grow at different speeds. We make different mistakes. We hesitate at different turns. And we must remember how Jesus concluded his great commission. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He does not leave us when we hesitate. He remains patiently waiting to lead us on when we have finally let go of whatever we were holding on to or whatever was holding on to us. Our moments of hesitation are opportunities to turn again to Christ and let him draw us to himself. In just 10 days, we will enter the season of Lent. This, of course, is a season for our reflection on our weaknesses and shortcomings, a time to repent and turn again to Christ. 
It is a time for our own ongoing conversion, a time to let the Great Commission do its work on us, to grow as disciples. So let us pay special attention to our hesitations this Lent. What is holding us back from worshiping Christ? What attachments, what fears, what distractions or demands? What is keeping us from letting go and going all in? The world is paying attention here too. The way we repent and grow when we have been less than faithful is as much a part of our witness as our unflinching devotion in the face of adversity. If the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, then the repentance of sinners is no mean fertilizer. So if you find yourself among the hesitators, don't hesitate to repent. The one who has promised to be with you always is ready to lead you through this and every ordeal to come. Amen.